2: I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century.
1: It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. They haven't run out of history quite yet.
0: Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by a very special guest from across the network from Earl Grey, it's Justin Ozer. Hi Justin, it's good to see you, how are you?
2: Hi, great to be here. You know, I've loved Primitive Culture ever since it debuted. I've listened to all the episodes and it's just wonderful to be guesting on this show.
0: Oh, that's nice to hear that from you. Um, it's, it's, it's great to have you on the show. It's It's been a while. I feel like I'm always saying this whenever we have a guest on. It's been a while setting these things up. I don't know why. I, I guess often because what happens is um, guests from across the network they come to us with ideas, and then we have to. Uh, so sometimes there's something that we've been thinking of doing already, in which case it's fairly straightforward. Sometimes it's something that's uh, totally off our radar, and then we have to kind of get our heads around it. Um, and that was certainly the case with the conversation that we had is so probably going back quite a few months now about this episode, which basically Justin came to me and he said there was something he really wanted to look at, which was the relationship between Star Trek and the TV series MASH. Now, I have to say, until this week, and I, I said this on Twitter and, and people literally couldn't believe this, until two days ago, in fact, I'd never seen a single episode of MASH. I was familiar with it. I'd kind of I'd seen clips uh on, you know. I don't know, on other shows and so on. So I, I, was, I was kind of vaguely aware of what it was, but I literally had never actually sat down and watched an episode. And so just to to forestall any disappointment on the part of our listeners, because I know, judging by when I put this tweet out, uh, we it got such a response from people. I, I, I'm getting the sense that this is a pretty big deal and that this show meant a lot to a lot of people, including you, Justin. But what I said uh, was, I don't have time, uh, to go and watch the whole of MASH right now. That's something I, I might do at some point in the future. But my idea was to just focus on a couple of episodes because there are a couple of episodes I was aware that kind of tie into DS9 in quite an interesting way and particularly into the character of Nog. And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be, um, looking at the way that these kind of MASH stories impact on, on Nog in particular in a couple of those episodes in the cards and also, uh, Treachery, Faith and the Great River. So that was kind of my compromise. So if anyone listening, thinking they want a kind of full retrospective on 11 seasons of MASH, uh, you're going to be disappointed because I've only seen those two episodes plus like one or two extra ones that I squeezed in. But putting all that aside, I mean, maybe Justin, you know, j- just to me, who's a complete MASH newbie, uh, you obviously, this is something that you are quite passionate about. It's a passion, it's a, you know, a part of your, um, your childhood or your fandom or whatever. Maybe you could just talk, me through a little bit what it what it is about that show that means so much to you what it is that made you think it would be something that you'd like to come and talk about
2: you know mash is something that at this point i've seen like three or four times all the way through the 250 something episodes i mean that's how much i really enjoy it and i enjoy enjoy kind of the the juxtaposition of the humor in the show with the the drama and kind of the moral and ethical dilemmas. So there's something similar to that with with Star Trek, even though the setting and the way that it's done is very different. There's kind of that nice mix of humor, but also the dramatic and, you know, moral dilemmas that you need to to think about. Now, the ones we'll be talking about today aren't necessarily typical episodes, but they have some connections with those DS9 episodes. But it's something actually that I hadn't seen until maybe 13 or 14 years ago. So, I didn't really see it growing up. I'd maybe seen a few episodes and it was kind of, I saw it on TV and and the laugh track and all of that, it just wasn't gelling for me. But but more recently, after I met my wife, we were able to see it on DVD and it has an option to see it to see the episodes without the laugh track and somehow that kind of got me and I was just really fascinated by the whole show and just you know watched it a number of times through we're doing another rewatch now so it's something like Star Trek where I've seen it you know quite a bit and I really enjoy what it was going for.
0: And it can keep giving, you know, you can keep going back to it and you keep getting something new out of it, obviously. I yes. mean, it's interesting what you're saying about the laugh track because because uh, Justin advised me, I managed to get um, these episodes on DVD and Justin told me, you know, take the laugh track off, don't watch with the laugh track. And I was actually in two minds. I-, I started off doing that and partly I found it slightly odd because occasionally you could tell people were pausing for a laugh that wasn't uh-huh. coming and that made me feel slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> and also I think as someone who is new to the show, I actually found it quite disorienting Not having it. Anyway, I kept flipping back and forth, basically. And in some ways I found the laughter was helpful because it gave a bit of extra energy to the show somehow. And it gave a kind of and I suppose the episodes that we're looking at are are very comic episodes. I mean, I understand MASH went in sort of more dramatic directions as well. And of course, what's I was also sort of aware, you know, Justin, you were saying to me, um, these are not necessarily typical MASH episodes in some ways, you know, Mm -hmm. they might not be the ones that you would choose to introduce someone to this show. And I, but then I was thinking, actually, these are not typical Deep Space Nine episodes that we're looking. At. I mean, in the cards, right. for example, is a very atypical Deep Space Nine episode. It's also, you know, in the midst of real kind of high drama. Um, and, and, you know, DS9's kind of most, um, I mean, it's on the cusp of the kind of what I would say is the sort of is, is my favorite arc in DS9, that kind of, you know, from, um, a call to arms through to sacrifice of angels, real kind of high drama there. And it's a very light quite sort of um i was gonna say flimsy but it's quite a sort of um it's almost like a sort of confection do you know what i mean it's a kind of it's an enjoyable uh little uh, sort of almost insignificant story it's a very small story the stakes of the story are very seemingly very small and yet at the same time it's done well enough that it feels kind of meaningful it actually has a lot of heart to it and it it actually is i think a fantastic episode but that would be a very strange episode of Deep Space Nine. I was aware if you were going to say to someone who'd never seen Star Trek before, go and watch in the cards, they might, it, it would be an odd way to introduce the show. Yeah, to it.
2: It, it would be. And, th- and I think there's a lot of context you need in order to really enjoy that episode. You can't jump in as the first one. Like if you haven't mm-hmm. seen any DS9, it would be like, what, what, what is going on <laughs> with this?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. And it, and it absolutely relies on affection for these characters, knowing these, you, you know, knowing them and their kind of foibles and so on. And and it's one of those shows that I always think, you know, DS9 could do this so well because it was so character focused. They could do these episodes where, you know, really the kind of love of those characters sort of sold it almost, you know? So it's not just about Jake and Nog in that instance. It's also about all the other characters and kind of their odd, quirky, bizarre uh needs that they have in that situation, you know, even to the extent of Bashir's teddy bear, which is frankly kind of ludicrous. And I was looking through the DS9 companion this week and um Some of the writers were sort of saying they couldn't quite believe that they kind of got that in there because they they thought it was so silly, this idea that he wants his teddy bear back. But, you know, it kind of worked for me.
2: That's one part of the episode that I don't like because Nog breaks into Lita's quarters while she's sleeping and takes it. I'm like, that's creepy, you know? (laughs) That's just the one – I mean, I love that episode so much, but that's the one part where I was like, if I could take anything out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The funny thing for me is In the Cards is an episode that I – did not like at all on first viewing. I mean, I first saw DS Nine in in first run. I was a teenager at the time. I was totally into the kind of Dominion War arc. I was into the big drama, into the big stakes and everything. And I saw that episode as a complete waste of time. And I, I, mm. it just didn't, it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't get it. I just thought, you know, what do they think they're doing? They're just sort of pissing around when they should be getting on with <laughs> the story. <laughs> you know, this is yeah. this is real kind of time wasting. But watching it, you know, as an adult it has a completely different effect on me. And I don't know whether, I was I was watching it this week and I was thinking, you know, why is that? Is it partly, you know, is it is it partly not being so wrapped up in the kind of um, serialised narrative now that we know where it's going and then we know that it's all there and so on, so you can kind of afford to have these digressions? Or is it also that somehow the stakes in that episode, as I say, they seem very small, but they're the, basically the, The sense we get in, in, in the cards is at the beginning, everyone is very depressed. It's, they're very fatalistic. Uh, they're very kind of, the mood is very low. You know, Odo says that thefts are up on the promenade and so on. There's this kind of real, just sort of depressive state of mind hanging over everyone. And by the end of it, through these quite silly. Gestures, really, on the part of Jake and Nog. You know, Cisco has he has this this log at the end, and he says a new spirit has swept through the station. Uh Nothing practically really has changed, except you know, Worf's got his music, and Bashir's got his teddy bear, and so on. But suddenly, everyone's mood has lifted. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, is that partly just you know, as an adult, that you you have to have kind of been through life and kind of experienced disappointment and experienced kind of you know unhappiness, and to to really appreciate that idea that you know these kind of small gestures can actually mean something. And in a kind of, in the bleakest of times, you know, you can take some kind of positivity or some kind of hope from these quite small things. And after all, you know, in some ways that's what Star Trek is. It's kind of offering you that kind of glimmer of hope in these dark times.
2: And I wonder if there is something to that because, I mean, actually, the first time that I ever saw DS9 was only about four years ago as an adult. And I've always wow. loved that episode. And right. the, the way that that I saw it at, at the time was these are characters that we love. I love that there's some fun in this episode and that there's something you can see to bolster their spirits right before the war really starts so in a way it's important in making sure that they're at a place that they can maybe better handle it you know when it gets there
0: it's kind of a palate cleanser almost isn't Mm -hmm. it it's sort of like saying you, you know okay we're gonna this is just gonna sort of clear clear the air somehow before we go in for the real like you know big drama somehow but i mean uh, reading through the DS9 Companion as well they sort of talk about the fact that because it's that kind of penultimate episode of the season no one really expects much from that episode and they were sort of saying as, that the writers could kind of get away with whatever they wanted and, and hence they could do this quite silly episode and even you know pushing it with um, you know there's that lions and tigers and bears oh my joke which is and yeah exactly kind of cringy cringy humor really and i think
2: they were like we can't i can't believe we got that in there
0: yeah i know exactly that's the thing but, but they i were smile like, at really it. just gonna push it <laughs> yeah i mean it's this <laughs> is not my favorite moment of the episode but i mean like i, I don't know but I, I i sort of appreciate the fact that they've gone so far and also you know the other thing i love about that episode is you have this whole discussion about the economics of the federation and jake actually directly quoting (laughs) captain picard in first contact and this is an episode i think was written by ron moore who of course wrote first contact but he's like sending up his own material (laughs) here and basically you know making a joke out of it i don't know i love that i just i just love this sort of playfulness of it but it did strike me you you know and obviously i haven't seen a lot of mash i've only seen these these kind of early episodes and I, i know that the show from what i've read about it changed a lot as it kind of went on and so on but I think it's one of the things that I love about Deep Space Nine is I think of all the Star Trek series, it's the one with the kind of greatest drama. It's the one with the highest stakes and the kind of uh, you know, it's the dark series, it's the gritty series, but it is also, I think of all the Star Trek series, the one that does comedy the best. Um, I think so. Yeah. And in a way you'd think those two things would be opposed to each other. You'd sort of think it would be, you know, Voyager, which is so kind of light and, and, and fluffy in some ways that would do comedy the best, but somehow it, it's DS9 that when they go for a comic episode, they absolutely land it. And it's kind of, again, it's kind of, it's to do with those characters and it's to do with the kind of emphasis on them as people. And th- Somehow they just know how to turn it on. And it's, it's rarely cringy in the way that sometimes when Star Trek does a comedy episode, it can be a little bit cringy. I feel like they, they, because the comedy feels organic, it feels natural. It feels like it sort of comes out of these people that we've got to know. And it's, it's kind of believable, but at the same time, it is very funny. And it kind of struck me, you know, thinking about MASH that there's something of the same thing there, it, it, you know, in, in the kind of idea of trying to do a, you know, whatever you'd call it, like a tragic comedy or a kind of Comedy drama, or, or whatever that sort of genre is, where you're sort of, you know, you are going for the laugh, and there are a lot of laughs in there, but there is also drama in there as well, and it's sort of all baked into the pie somehow.
2: I mean, and just the idea of MASH that there are these these doctors, you know, in a war zone who have to operate on. I mean, you don't see it in the episodes that we saw, but I mean, typically mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of episodes where uh, there's a lot of casualties, and they have to, uh, you know, do surgery and like all of this serious stuff that's life and death. But somehow they put the comedy in there and it works in this situation because like in a certain way, you may need something that's comic the most when you're in the darkest of situations to just keep you going right so mm-hmm. in a certain way it makes sense but i think it's hard to pull off but yeah i think deep space nine does it well i think there are you know other places in and track that do it well and i think mash does it well and that's one of the things i love because if it was all like 100 percent drama you'd be just like drained <laughs> right there's got to be <laughs> yeah, something right. to lift it
0: yeah yeah and, and i mean that's true you, you know even with you know with theater or with, with anything actually i mean if you think particularly of theater you know even the darkest sort of grittiest most serious of plays usually they have the odd joke in there somewhere mm-hmm. and you kind of you almost need that i mean and even you know some of the darkest grittiest deep space nine episodes there's going to be you know a line in there that kind of breaks the tension there's going to be a sort of moment and i think that kind of we need that sort of balance you know to to kind of make these things work but it's definitely an interesting question like how do you kind of where does that line fall? But I guess in t- just in terms of the episodes that we're thinking of, the main one for MASH really, I think, is the episode for Want of a Boot, which is a second season, I think, episode. Yeah. And basically this is the episode where Hawkeye has got a hole in his boots, he needs some new boots, and the, 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 the story of the episode is basically how's he going to get his boots. And funnily enough, one of the things that made me think that, you know, while they were writing in the cards, they must have been thinking of this, is there's even a point in... In the cards where Nog says to Jake, cause they're trying to get hold of this baseball card and it's, it's, it's not going well. He says, you know, couldn't you get him a new, couldn't you get your dad a new pair of shoes instead? And I couldn't help thinking that must be <laughs> a reference to this mash episode where the whole, you know, where the stakes are not the baseball card, it's a pair of boots. It's something kind of a, even more mundane, in fact, but you, you, you know, totally kind of, it's a MacGuffin, I suppose. And that's the thing with all these episodes is it's like really the thing that they're trying to get is incidental to the kind of process that is involved and the ingenuity mm-hmm. that's involved to getting there. I mean, in Treachery, Faith and the Great River, which we might come on to talk about a bit later, you know, they're trying to get this gravity generator or whatever it is. We don't ever see it. We don't even see the defiance, right. I think, <laughs> in that episode. We you know, it's completely beside the point, really. Uh, it's just the MacGuffin. It's the thing that is, we, we have to be told is the kind of focus of all the attention somehow. So in for want of a boot, it's, it's a new boot and the whole of the episode involves this quite elaborate. Uh, sequence of of trades and negotiations and arrangements that Hawkeye goes through in order to try and get that boot, basically. Yeah. I
2: mean, so what I found interesting comparing, you know, the MASH episodes with the DS9 episodes is that in these mash episodes we'll talk about for one of the boot of a boot first like in the end he does all these trades it seems like it's working but then somebody doesn't want to go along and it falls through Mm. he doesn't actually get his boot and there's this you know funny bit where he's like walking around with a golf bag on his on his shoe as a shoe um so i and i think that can be typical of of mash where it's like you're trying to do these things and 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 part of it happens because of the bureaucracy it's like i have a hole in my boot I ordered them weeks ago, but you know, there's all this bureaucracy in the army. I don't know if they're going to get it right. I don't know if I'll ever get it. So I need to go through this crazy thing to try to get it, but he doesn't succeed. Whereas in, you know, the Deep Space Nine episodes, they do succeed. They get the baseball card, they get what they need for the gravity generator and all that. So it's interesting in MASH that it's more pessimistic, like, what can you do? You know, there's nothing (laughs) you can do. And in Deep Space Nine, it's like, It may seem like we're on thin ice for a while, but we're going to get there. Trust us, we're going to get there. And they do, right? In both episodes, really.
0: They do. They do. Absolutely. And certainly in the cards, you know, I mean, I talked about how when I was a teenager watching this episode, did nothing to me. I can't watch that episode now without crying at the end of it. I mean, it sounds ridiculous because it's Mm. such a sort of silly episode, but, you know, they they pull something out of the bag. And that that final scene, just that montage of everyone, you know, going about their, their day, just... And it being slightly better as a result except of what Jake and, except and done. Lita, except <laughs> Lita, except Lita, that's true. I know, I know. Poor Lita, She's not happy, yeah. Because they even
2: have this this shot where it's like, "Where is my teddy bear?" <laughs> I know, I
0: know. <laughs> no, you're right, you're right. Well, you know, so- someone has to suffer, but you know, <laughs> someone has to suffer, and in, in this instance, it's Lita. But I mean, you know, everyone else is just—I don't know—it's just happier. And, and also, I think you know, in the episode, it ends on this hug between uh, Jake and Cisco, and it's just such a sweet. Mm. It is moment. And it's so nice, you know, and Jake says in the episode, you know, I just want to do something for him. He's always doing stuff for me. And of course, that's what we've seen throughout, you know, whatever it is, five seasons of DS9 by this point is Ben being very protective of Jake and so on. And other than, I mean, obviously the visitor was, you know, obviously the other big episode where Jake did something massive for Ben. And, you know, in some ways, maybe there's a weird sort of, I don't know, echo of that there. But for, for me, that kind of final montage really always gets me these days because it's so kind of heartfelt and you're right it's completely the opposite of the mash episode where it ends in farce it ends the whole thing kind of falls apart basically everyone's made these presents uh, these uh these everyone's made these promises and and gradually one person goes back and then the next person does and the next one I just made a little list of what they are. They're basically, uh, for, for anyone who hasn't seen the mash episode, to give you an idea. So Hawkeye, which is the Alan Alda character. I'm sure you will probably know this better than I do. Uh, he needs his boots. The the guy who's got the boots, who's what, I guess like the quartermaster or something, the guy in the stores anyway, yeah. uh, says he needs to see the dentist urgently, although he's not at the top of the list. The dentist wants to go on a trip to Japan. The Commanding officer who could send the dentist to Japan uh, has uh, someone else has written a report um, saying negative things about him and he wants it to be blocked. Uh, the woman who's written the report agrees to not send it if they throw a party for her lover, boyfriend, whatever. Yeah, pretty her, much. Guy she's sort of having an affair with who everyone hates. And then that, that involves trying to get these kind of popular girls to come to the party and one of them wants a hairdryer. So it's exactly the same kind of, you know, sequence of, of crazy. Trades and so on, and in some ways, I suppose it falls somewhere between in the cards, where literally it's like a shopping list that they've been given, and they have to tick off each item on the list.
2: And I love that guy and his like cellular entertainment chamber. I think oh, he's
0: fantastic. It's great, he, yeah.
2: but yeah, they have like this laundry list, like oh, can you get me this, 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 and this? And yeah. it's like it's going to take a while, but yeah.
0: But there's also e- even in in For Want of a Boot, there's also that sense that you see in Treachery, Faith, and the Great River of each trade is contingent on the next one, and you mm-hmm. know that kind of. The kind of craziness of the situation when O'Brien is saying to, to Nog at one point, I think, you know, so, and so if we give this to this person, then they'll get that. And and Nog says, well, that's a rumor. You know, there's a rumor (laughs) that they might have it. And it's like everything is reliant on this huge chain of trades. I mean, it's a house of cards, really. Well, I I was going to say it's a bit like if you've ever had to try and buy a house, you know, (laughs) it's (laughs) the same thing. It's like being caught in a chain and, and, you know, like three links down the chain, someone decides not to go through with it and the whole thing, you know falls apart but yeah exactly it's kind of a house of cards it's a kind of you know that's where part of the comedy comes from is the sort of absurdity of this sort of this train and of course in the mash episode yeah the the it, it goes wrong at the end and then everyone once they don't get what they've been offered goes back on what they've promised
2: yeah and that says something interesting like they they only want i mean and that's the case in the mash episode and in the um the ds9 episodes like everybody wants something there's nobody who's like you know what I've worked with you for a while. I'm going to do you this favor. Everybody wants mm-hmm. something. And as soon as they don't get it, forget about it. It's not going to happen. And it's like, wow, that's that's really saying something about how things work in both of the universes of this show. Like, I mean, and how humans generally work. Like, If I'm going to go out of my way, you need to do something for me. Although that's not 100% of the way that things go, because I think everyone's had an experience where they ask something from somebody and they're like... Here you go. No problem. I won't ask Mm -hmm. anything in return. You've done other things for me. You know, I want to help you with this. No problem. But in these episodes, like, in order for it to work, it has to be this for that, this for that in order for it to keep going. But life isn't always like that, right? Sometimes people will give you just something,
0: (laughs) right? The, the, one of the bits that i like though i, I mean I, I think that is true yeah absolutely and it and certainly in the cards it, it very much hinges on this idea that like everyone can be bought basically yeah. it's a very kind of ferengi idea you know nog says he's gonna uh give jake a lesson in incentive-based economics basically the idea that you know everyone has a price essentially if you can work out what what people want and it's interesting because jake sort of tries to get on board with it doesn't he and he because they they offer o'brien some Time in the Hollow Suite by doing him a favour, some boring job that he's supposed to be doing, and then he sort of tries to do the same thing with Bashir and says, "You know, wouldn't you rather be somewhere else?" And Bashir's like, "No, I'm doing exactly (laughs) what I want." You know, Uh, and Jake's a bit stumped because he's like, he's he's sort of he's failed to really learn the lesson that Nog's teaching, which is, you know, you've got to. It's it's, he's like the the you know, I mean, it is they're interesting these episodes because they take all the kind of characteristics of the Ferengi being these kind of wheeler dealers, being these kind of trade you you sort of use car salesman type uh, skills in a way. But put a positive spin on it. So he's sort of using them for good rather than Quark trying to basically, uh, rip people off. But it's definitely based on that idea of, you know, if you, if you can find out what it is that someone wants, then you can, you, you, know, you need to sort of get to understand them in order to work out how to manipulate them. And I was going to say the, the exception to what you are saying about it being tit for tat and everyone wants something is O'Brien, because actually the way they get what they want with O'Brien is they offer it as a gift. They, they, they ask O'Brien for what they want. He basically says, you know, no. Uh, and then they come back and they say, you know, let, why don't we help you out with this or whatever? You go and do your thing. And then they say, Oh, about those, those things that we, that we asked for. And O'Brien's like, Oh yeah, yeah, sure. I'll sort it out for you. So there, there isn't explicitly this idea of a tit for tat. Well, but, um, but he is it's, doing it. It's not it for a the... trade exactly. No, I know, but it's like with O'Brien, it, it feels like almost they've kind of gone around the side of, of making it less explicit. So it seems like it's more like, I'll rub your back, you rub mine, kind of thing. Mm, okay. uh, here, let me do you a favor. Oh, about that other thing. Oh, yeah, sure. But it's it's <laughs> not it's not as explicitly a trade, so it's not something that he can go back on in the same way as That's in true. the in the mash episode. Everyone can basically say, "Well, you've you haven't fulfilled your part of the deal, therefore, there's no way I'm giving you what you're asking for."
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I could totally see that.
0: But actually, that raises a sort of interesting question. In some ways, I think I was listening. I um. I mentioned to you justin when i was uh because we because when we were talking about mash and what our ideas about mash were and i said to you, you know I, I don't know much about mash but i you know I, I have always been a big fan of alan alder i've always thought he was great in everything I've, I've seen him in and obviously this is the main uh thing that he's known for i'd never really seen it and he i think he's you know he is definitely for me he's what made those episodes watchable and the, the two mash episodes that we looked at the other one is is an episode called the it's called The Price of Tomato Juice. Something about tomato juice. Price of Tomato Juice, yeah. And it's basically the same kind of thing, only the character of Radar is doing all these trades to try and get some tomato juice for their, their CEO. And I felt like in that episode, it, it just didn't work in the same way. And I think a large part of that is down to kind of Alan Alda's, uh sort of charisma and, and, and the charm of his character and his kind of, exactly that kind of wheeler-dealer, sort of slightly roguish quality, because he's... It's interesting. My, my sense anyway, from, you know, obviously only having seen a handful of, of MASH episodes, is he's not the most likable guy, necessarily, or guy. He seems like a bit of a jerk in a way, but at the same time, he's very right. watchable. He's very kind of appealing. Uh, he's very sort of charismatic. And funnily enough, one of the things I, I said to you is, because um, we were talking about Alan Alda, uh, and, and I said, did you know that he he does this podcast now? He does a podcast called Clear and Vivid. Uh, he's like, what, eighty something now i think and, and he's just something like own yeah. podcast basically but he's a, he's a big uh big into communication and so on so his podcast is all about like connecting with people and and communicating and so on and i was listening to an episode this week which was quite interesting about empathy and he was talking to this guy who'd written a book about th- arguing against th- the overuse of empathy in a sense it's quite a sort of controversial position to take and what alan Older was saying was that the way he saw it, empathy could was a, a sort of skill that could be used in a good way or a bad way. And the bad way, what he was talking about in terms of dark empathy, was exactly the kind of used car salesman, the person, the unscrupulous salesman, the kind of Ferengi who comes in and gets to know someone, works out what it is that they want, you, you know, kind of really understands the other person, but not from a position of genuinely trying to help them, but from a position of like, how can I get what I want out of this person? How can I sort of use this person? And I suppose there's that element there with Nog that, you know, in both these DS9 episodes, particularly actually in Treachery Faith and the Great River, there's this sense that, you know, Nog can do things that O'Brien can't do, both in terms of, you know, these kind of elaborate trades and, and, and things that O'Brien would never do, such as trading his commanding officer's desk and taking these <laughs> kind of risks yeah. that could potentially ruin his career or selling Martok's blood wine or whatever, which could get him in, in you know, really sticky situation. But there's also this sense that Nog can.
2: I was going to say, and I love how how Nog is like, oh, just give me your authorization code; it'll make it easier for this. And then he uses yeah. it like <laughs> five or six times for other things.
0: He totally abuses it, basically. <laughs> but there's so, so he's going to do what he needs to—a very DS9 kind of attitude, you know, character who kind of skirts the the, the sort of ethics in a way. But also, he is going it, to. It's not just that; it's also his kind of understanding of people. So, as he says to O'Brien, you know. Oh, I, I have to get to know the quartermaster. I know his wife's name. I know his kids' names. I know what, what they're like. You know, it's this kind of like exactly that idea of getting to know someone, but ultimately he's only doing all of this, like the used car salesman to, to get what he needs, you know, just the same way that Quark would, except that Nog is in Starfleet. He's doing it for the right reasons. And funnily enough, it reminded me of another MASH episode that I, um, was watching just sort of by the by in preparation for this, which was the, the, uh, very, second episode like the first episode after the pilot which came up in relation to this because there's this issue of the desk and it's an episode in which uh hawkeye and his his friend who i can never, what's his friend's name
2: oh in the in the first season you're thinking of trapper
0: right okay yeah Anyway, they they they're trying to get some medicine and they end up trading their commanding officer's desk. And the comedy is like how they're gonna get it out of his office. And then <laughs> it's very funny. They end up taking the wall down of the of the like hut that the the office is in and, and taking it out that way and it goes off on a helicopter. It's all yeah. quite mad and, and crazy. But um but actually that's an episode where, yes, there there's this kind of wheeler dealering aspect to some extent yes they're kind of slightly shady they're trading on the black market and so on but they're actually doing it in order to get some medicine that they need to to treat their patients so again there's that kind of idea of they're sort of the greater good they're on the right side of things even if their conduct is a bit shifty
2: i mean and again in that in that episode it's because of the bureaucracy like i think they Mm -hmm. were supposed to get this medicine this hydrocortisone but there was some screw up (laughs) and they didn't get it and they got something else and they're like oh, we need this right away because we're out so they're willing to do what they need to help save lives but i think like in mash especially there's this idea that there's this bureaucracy that's keeping them from doing what they need to which is to help people and and save lives which is something a little bit different than what's going on in 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 ds9 where it's although i i guess in treachery faith and the great river there is this like three week waiting list to because of the bureaucracy and they're going to Find their way to the top of the list. So I guess there is that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Cisco needs to take the Defiant out. That's potentially going to save lives. Those kind of, you know, the stakes are. Although, although it's cut, kind of, it's, it's more
2: like inconvenience. It's like, well, I don't want while we're out there for the gravity to be a little dodgy. It's not like life or death, but. It's still important to it. That's true. You're
0: right. You mean he could go without it. Yeah. That
2: yeah, that, that potentially. is
0: true. And there is that kind of sense of Cisco as the kind of slightly intimidating boss and no one go- wants to get in trouble with him and kind yeah. of like you know, <laughs> perish, perish the thought they've lost his desk and what are they what are they gonna do in that situation? Whereas actually in the MASH episode, the guy in charge seems a bit kind of he's not really a figure of, of great authority, right? He's, he's, no, he's I a mean, bit of a I, fool in a way.
2: Yeah, so um in the the first three seasons the CEO is colonel blake and he's not really intimidating to anyone he's kind of being manipulated a lot of times by people but the one that you saw the the price of tomato juice which is in season four has Mm -hmm. colonel potter who's much more intimidating figure but but definitely blake in that episode because like what happens is basically they take his desk and it's gone and it's like well what are you gonna do that's the black market and like of course it never comes up again but whereas in treachery faith in the great river it's like we better get this thing back or Cisco's going to be really angry and heads are going to yeah. roll because <laughs> he's super intimidating
0: yeah yeah he is absolutely, and and it's also the like the desk that they end up with in the in the meantime is so so <laughs> pathetic. It's like but, but, it looks like but it's going to come from it? IKEA or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know it's this tiny, yeah, it's little really unimpressive desk. little yeah. little desk. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea in that episode as well. That they mentioned that this guy's taking pictures behind Captain Picard's desk as well. This this kind of fan who's well, kind I, of I want to I want to see that
2: story where he sneaks into Picard's yeah. <laughs> ready
0: room and takes a I picture know, behind I know. his desk. But it's almost like, I guess, you you know, I I mean, like if you go to, you know, Star Trek Las Vegas or something, you can go and sit on the bridge or, you know, you can have these photos done. It's kind of like living that sort of fantasy, right? Of the, you you know, here's me in the captain's chair. Here's me behind the desk. It's, I don't know, there's something quite charming about that idea. I, I found that very funny. But I think it's interesting when we look at these ideas of these these stories kind of influencing each other and cropping up, you know, whether MASH has influenced DS9 or whatever, that, you know, there are also stories that can be kind of repeated. I mean, arguably Treachery Faith and the Great River has a lot in common within the cards. And it's even, you know, the same character, Nog, who's kind of doing the same kinds of things again. And obviously in MASH they basically haven't exactly rehashed the same story but it's very similar structurally, The Price of Tomato Juice, uh, to For the Want of a Boot. And again there's this kind of the same element that it ends he goes he goes through all these kind of hoops to try and uh get this tomato juice um and he does get it at the end he, he gets it he gives it to the co and the co says oh sorry i can't drink it i forgot i'm allergic to it <laughs> it's <this laughs> right. ridiculous idea that at the start of the episode he said oh wow tomato juice i love it i love it so much and then it turns out that he drank it and it made him really ill and then he's like yeah i'm never touching that again <laughs> uh, so again the whole thing was for nothing so there's this kind of sort of bathos almost of, of like, you, you know, yeah. all this kind of build up, these kind of ridiculous levels of, of jumping through the hoops and kind of and going to these great extent, all for absolutely nothing. It all falls apart one way or another.
2: And I think that, I mean, in a way that that gets at the core of something in, in MASH, which is that, I mean, first of all, this is about the Korean War, which lasted three years, and there's 11 seasons about this, right? It goes right. on long, <laughs> much longer than the war yeah. itself and th- and there's a certain sense in mash in which you can have like momentary happiness but it never lasts and in the end things won't work out and also you know it's it's i think it's a it's a metaphor for the whole war it's like they fought this war and basically ended up where they had started with Korea mm-hmm. divided in half and now 65 years later there isn't even an official peace treaty right So, there's this sense, and and it was also meant to be a commentary on Vietnam at the time, like, people are dying, all of this is happening, what's it for? It's for nothing. And so, even within those episodes, it's like, you know, we did all of this stuff, but really, there was only like a momentary thrill out of it. It was all for nothing. Whereas on Deep Space Nine, I think part of the reason why things work out is because... They are, you know, in the, in the course of, of the series, trying to do something to defend Federation ideals. And especially during the course of the Dominion War, they're, they're trying to make sure that the Federation doesn't get taken over by the Dominion and, you know, all of these atrocities and brutalities that will probably happen. There's a sense that they're doing it for something. And so I think it makes sense Mm -hmm. in the two episodes that things do work out in the end because as much as people you know talk about ds9 as being dark and gritty i think that ultimately like if you look at the whole arc of the show where it started out as you know the cardassians have destroyed a lot of beijor's infrastructure and inflicted a lot of these things on the people the station itself is in shambles if you look at that and then go toward the end it they've they've fought this successful war they're going to go forward into the future there's a sense that at a certain point pejor is going to join the federation so actually it's it's kind of like there are these episodes are periods of time of darkness but ultimately it's a hopeful message if you just go from the first episode to the very i mean even though of course like in the last episode you know hundreds of millions of people die which is not not good and not hopeful but mm-hmm. like in a certain sure. way they've turned the corner and it's going to to be something much better than where they started at the beginning whereas in mash it's kind of like in the end of it the best thing you can get out of it is just going home right but mm. what have you really gotten out of it? Lots of people died. These people lost years off of their lives being in the conflict and all of that. So, there's a sense like that I think permeates the show that a, a lot of it's kind of for nothing except for the experiences that they have with each other and the friendships and the bonds that they make and the few people they are able to save. You know, it's it's it. I feel mm. like it's like they're using the same kind of story in a very different way and I think there's a reason why in one case it doesn't work out and in the other case it does
0: that's interesting although DS9 does have that kind of bleakness at the end I mean I'm thinking of you know what you leave behind of that idea, you, you know, that whole thing about they're going to drink the crate of blood wine or whatever, and they end up pouring it on the ground because there's that sense, and the and the female changeling says, you know, your your victory will taste as bitter as defeat or something like that, doesn't she? You know, that idea that you know ultimately no one comes out of a war like that winning in a sense, like there are no okay, winners in yeah. some way. So, but but yeah, no, I, I take your point that in terms of they're very much on the right side of this. It's very uh, it's very much the kind of. The just war that they're fighting, if you know what I mean, in DS9, Mm -hmm. it's definitely, you know, there's the danger they might lose it, but there's certainly no question that it needs to be fought in a sense. It was interesting what you're saying, though, about this sense of the Korean War in MASH. I mean, I was thinking if I didn't know that that show was set during the Korean War... I don't think from any of the episodes that I've watched, and I have watched about four or five of them this week, I actually it could have been anywhere. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like it was so, so much of it is so unspecific. Uh, And maybe that's realistic to the kind of day-to-day life of people in that situation. I mean, I know it's a kind of drama comedy, but is it on one level situation comedy? That's the situation. But it 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 certainly doesn't always impinge on the kind of um story but then you could say the same about deep space 9 that you know the the kind of serialized story doesn't always impinge on what's going on from week to week sometimes it has nothing to do with it you know it's kind of that's just the setting in a way
2: yeah i mean it it it's interesting just hearing your experience just from a a few episodes because i mean i think there are certain episodes where it's very clear where it's where it's very clear that it's taking place during the 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 Korean War because of the specific story and you could only have that kind of story in okay, that context so. but at the same time I think they were going for something that would be commentary on the Vietnam War at the time but probably also a commentary on any war that there's yeah. going to be you know lives that end lives that are irrevocably changed mm-hmm. and that you could because uh, yeah I mean I guess you could look at that setting and be like well you know, maybe that could be any war. I mean, you can place it in a certain period of time because of the uniforms and the equipment they have and all that, but it could stand for for any war, I guess.
0: It it reminded me when you were saying about, you know, the fact that MASH was set in the Korean War, but taking place during the Vietnam War. The other story that I wanted us to look at in relation to these stories in relation to Nog is Catch-22, which is, uh, you know, a novel by Joseph Heller which was written, is is set during the Second World War and is based, you know, to some very limited extent on Joseph Heller's own experiences as a bombardier in the Second World War, but was written, I think he started writing it in 1953, sort sort of around that period. So, And then it wasn't published until 1961. But so it was very much informed by... The korean war even though it was set in the second world war and he actually said in interviews you know in various places yeah this is this doesn't really reflect my feelings about the second world war at all you know i didn't uh because the novel is for anyone who hasn't read it is it's a very um it's a satire basically it's a very kind of farcical crazy again taps into a lot of these ideas about where the line between comedy and drama and and being able to sort of switch back and forth it's very it's kind of absurdist basically Almost sort of Alice in Wonderland level of absurdity yes. a, a lot of times but it is it does also have this kind of slightly biting element of satire and and Heller was very keen to emphasize that really the satire it, he was not satirizing the forces in the second world War that ostensibly are what the book is about. he was satirizing the Korean War which was taking place at the time that he was writing it so it's kind of interests me that idea that you know a story about one war can really be about another one. But certainly in terms of Nog and in terms of Treachery Faith and the Great River, although we might see the the uh, influence of those mash episodes in that episode and certainly the reason i think i suggested this episode to you was cuz i'd seen a lot of people online saying oh it's just like that mash episode and by the way that story was ripped off in sergeant bilko and it was ripped off somewhere else and you know mash ripped it off themselves cuz they ended up running the same <laughs> storyline twice and so in some ways did ds9 but the 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 story that actually the writers of treachery faith and the great river were thinking about was catch 22 and if you go again back to the DS9 companion, there's a line in there, David Weddle, who was one of the writers on it. He said, as we were talking about the B story, Ira, Zyra Stephen Bear obviously said, why don't we just do one where Nog is like Milo Minderbinder? And Milo Minderbinder is the character in Catch 22 who is exactly that kind of Wheeler Dealer character, who is the kind of the sort of roguish trader who, who organizes these ludicrous totally absurd trades this enormous kind of business empire he's he is like a real ferengi character he's like he's turned the war into a kind of profit making exercise very different from nog in some ways but in other ways he he does have things in common with him he's quite young he's very keen it's all about he's very keen to like make a good impression he's got all these kind of qualities that nog has but he's a very interesting character because in some ways he's sort of a lovable rogue in other ways he's one of the darkest characters in that book i think in a way
2: oh yeah it was interesting that you made the suggestion to read Catch Twenty Two, which, which I did for this episode mm-hmm. because I, I mean to be honest, like I found it to be a really dark novel and hard to read at times. And the the character of Milo Minderbinder, it's I mean, it is really to a crazy extent. I mean, at one point, he's really like paying the enemy to bomb their own camp, right? And people die because yeah. of it, and there's all this stuff that that he's doing. And he is really making his own empire. I was just amazed that the lengths Joseph Heller took it to because like every town that he's in, he's like, you know the mayor or the Sultan or like this person that they feel is it should be their their leader and and totally influential. and he keeps talking about oh you ha- you all have shares in this and it's like, where's my share? here He writes on a piece of paper a share. nobody actually gets anything out of it but somehow he gets away with all of this stuff like he's he's a war hero. And, th- and there's something also very interesting about it because he's really trying to monetize the war effort in a way that you don't usually see. But I think that's something that's increasingly happened where, you know, contractors are looking to make money from a war that's that's going on or conflict that's going on. But he takes it to such an absurd extreme where it's like, if that was the real world, you know, somebody would I definitely get like court-martialed for that but but I guess Joseph is trying to make a, a a point that like there there is kind of this this worship of of making money and taking it to this mm-hmm. absurd extreme shows you know the extreme that people can go to and how much they can be celebrated for it something like that is what I took out of it
0: And part of what we see in Catch-22 is that the superior, uh, Colonel Cathcart, totally buys into this idea. Like Milo (laughs) has completely convinced his superiors that this is the the right thing to do, even though it is blatantly unpatriotic. Uh, you know, he, I mean, he's basically a war profiteer. He's completely unscrupulous. In some ways, you could say he's the villain of the book because he, yeah. you know, he does end up with, you know, other major characters in the book dying as a result of his raids. You know, he's bombing his own people. He's sort of subcontracting everything out to, to, to one person or another. So it, he's sort of the point where maybe the book's kind of satirical absurdity. In some ways meets reality because it has real world consequences, but it's also, there's this kind of one of the things that made me think of Nog as well, as well as this kind of keenness and this sort of desire to impress and, and the fact that, you know, his, his whole thing is about he wants to set up a mart and he wants to set up a syndicate and he wants to set up all this kind of business empires, this kind of Ferengi attitude is he has this almost, you know, we see Nog in that episode talking about the, the, the great river and this kind of mystical uh, idea of everything being connected and this kind of elevating capitalism, in a sense, to a sort of philosophy of, of a sort of metaphysical idea of, of of the universe, almost. And I think with Milo, there's kind of this sense of the syndicate is this kind of, as you say, it's a setup in which no one ever really gets anything out of it. It's all completely absurd because people end up paying more for things than they are worth or or even there are all these kind of bizarre conversations where he says he's going to make money by buying from himself. He's always, I know. And it, but the weird thing is it all reminded me of like, you know, all the kind of like subprime mortgages or you, you know, these things, instruments in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. there was a play here in London, uh, a few years ago. I don't know. It may have transferred over to the states in the end. I don't know. It was a play about Enron and it was this very, uh, entertaining, very fantastic production. Basically, they had, you know, sort of singing and dancing and, and people dressed up as velociraptors and all these kind of weird things, but it was kind of trying to get across how mad the kind of trading and the ideas and the kind of financial concepts and instruments involved in all of that kind of crisis were. And it did that again through this kind of absurdity, but you definitely get that sense with Milo of the kind of just the the sort of the madness of it all. A, it's incredibly complicated, just like with Nog making this deal with this person to make a deal with this person to make a deal with the other person based on a rumour that this person somewhere else might offer this and, and this in exchange. It's sort of absurdly complicated, but it's also sort of, it literally doesn't make It's literally nonsense. It's pure nonsense at some level, which is why <laughs> I say it's kind of almost Alice in Wonderland level. It's kind of, yeah. and I think there's an element of that in Catch-22 is it's, the whole book is sort of built on paradox, really. The kind of the madness of war expressed through... Almost in every sentence, there's a kind of paradox of, of some kind or another, you know, that kind of conveys this world in which no one really says what they mean. Uh, no one ever really makes sense. The kind of people in charge, it's, it's not just that they make decisions for kind of venal, illogical reasons. It's that there's literally a kind of. I don't know how to express it there's a, there's a the, the, the sort of topsy-turvy quality to the whole thing you know so for example yeah. a character is believed to be dead when he isn't and then no one will recognize that he's alive even though he's walking around <laughs> saying i'm here i'm here i'm still alive yeah. <laughs> he's certified as dead and then the he paperwork says you're
2: dead so you must exactly be dead. <laughs> it's that kind of
0: yeah sort of Kafkaesque kind of sort of crazy world uh and, and even in the language there are lines like this joke that comes up several times i just wrote this line down the, these these two men are told to take this man outside and him so the, the the story says you know they didn't know what to do neither of them had ever taken major danby outside and shot him before so even just like on the most like basic level of what seems like a reasonable uh statement is followed up by a kind of absurdist statement so the whole sort of language of the novel is, is infused with this kind of madness but in some ways you know which obviously is not the case in deep space nine is not the not the case there but but there is an element of that i think in this idea of the kind of the Great River and this kind of mystical element of everything being connected and the kind of commerce being connected in this totally irrational kind of ungraspable way somehow, this this kind of system that, that almost mere mortals can't understand.
2: I do think it's interesting to know that Catch-22 actually inspired what was in there for Nog and Treachery Faith in the Great River because I feel like they did do something different because, you know, it, it is a certain, like, mystical way that he explains it, but there's another way that Nog explains it that makes sense. Every world has too much mm-hmm. of one thing and too little of another, which is the basis of trade between countries and presumably could be the basis of trade between worlds. So, what he's doing makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, and, and also, you know, Nog does all of these trades because – that's what he's learned and that's what Ferengi do. But just by, you know, being a cadet in Starfleet, he's doing something very different than other Ferengi do and he's not really going to profit off of it himself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there are other Ferengi that are doing things that are can have far more detrimental consequences. But like reading this novel and that character of Milo, like he out-Ferengis any Ferengi I think that we've ever oh, seen, yeah. right? Because <laughs> yeah. he is... because what's interesting about Deep Space Nine is you get a, a certain sense, you know, they say war is good for business, peace is good for business, right? But there's a certain point at which, you know, Quark is like, well, you know, look at your history on Earth and all the wars you've been through and all of that. We didn't really go through that. We're just in it for commerce. We're not in it to kill other people, you know? So, there's a certain mm-hmm. way in which, <laughs> in comparing themselves with previous people on Earth, there's a certain, like, moral superiority that they have about it. But, but Milo, I, I mean, it's... It's kind of like if, like, everybody's way of thinking about things went completely upside down and they were like, you know what, Milo, you make a lot of sense. We're all about making money, you're doing the best, you're indispensable. Yeah, sure, some people got killed, but, you know, what can you do? That's business. I mean, that's kind of the, the sense that you get, which is completely ridiculous, but... I think it's interesting they were inspired by that because I think they've toned down. I mean, partly because we know who Nog is by season seven, right? But they've toned that way, way, way down. But but he is doing like all of these trades and all of this wheeling and dealing. But I feel like to me, it feels like it's more inspired by by MASH where all of that trading and wheeling and dealing is for a better purpose instead of for your own enrichment and that can involve other people getting killed, you know? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I wonder also how much like Catch Twenty Two itself inspired MASH, which as a novel came out in nineteen sixty-eight, you know, some years later. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much it inspired that, but they had a he had a different the author of that book had a different take on it.
0: Well I think there's always been a link between those two stories. I mean, partly because I, I don't know so much about the the novel of MASH, but the film I know was released, I think, at the same the same year as the film of Catch Twenty-Two. And the, the film of Catch-22, I have to say, I, I have watched it this week. I have watched it before. Some people love that film. It's like it's got all the money thrown at it to kind of recreate the Second World War and all this stuff. It's It's got an absolute amazing all-star cast. You know, it's got awesome Wells. It's got kind of all kinds of, you know, big stars of the, of the era. For me, it just absolutely doesn't work as a film. And apparently what happened was that the film of MASH, which obviously is not, Historically, a successful TV series of MASH that followed it, it did much better than the film Catch 22, even though Catch 22 had been a huge bestseller as a novel. Mm. And again, there was that sort of idea of, look, here are these two things. They're quite, there's, there's definitely a similarity. Okay. One is set in the Second World War, one is set in the Korean War, but they both got this kind of tragic comic sensibility, kind of looking at the, you know, the potential comedy of warfare rather than the kind of drama necessarily, but, bring, but, but marrying that with the drama as well. And I think the feeling then was that basically, when it came to the cinema, MASH had kind of outperformed Catch-22 somehow playing the same game. And obviously, then, you know, MASH moved on to the TV and became even more successful as a TV show, much more successful than it was as a film. But so there's definitely, I think, an idea that they're kind of playing in the same sandbox and that there's a kind of there's, they're not exactly the same. I mean, you know, insofar as Catch-22 is so utterly like divorced from the real world because it's so absurdist. And I mean, even yeah. at, at the very start of the novel, there's a little note from Joseph Heller saying it takes place on this uh, island in Italy called Pianosa. And he says, basically, the island of Pianosa is tiny and couldn't possibly accommodate all of the... Stuff that happens in this novel, <laughs> right? Uh, and and that is almost like a sort of emblem for the fact that the novel itself is totally. I mean, it's a huge, it's a fat book as well. You know, for for such a mad concept, it's it's quite a long novel. Oh yeah, it's four hundred sixty pages. It's, so, exactly. So. It's 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 not a kind of slim volume. It's kind of you know, it's expansive. It's over the top. It's exaggerated. and everything about it is kind of OTT and and sort of g- goes beyond reality and kind of credibility and so on but one thing that i that i do slightly i don't know whether i entirely agree with you about is is when you say that in the ds9 episode that yes it's true that that, that you were saying that Nog gives two explanations he gives the kind of mystical explanation and then he gives the kind of practical explanation which is basically supply and demand one planet has a surplus uh, of this and a deficit of that mm-hmm. and therefore a kind of trading begins and i suppose what i felt is that um and you get glimpses of this in the DS9 episode, because the trades get increasingly elaborate and complicated and and sort of ridiculous, is that it's one thing to say that in a kind of, I don't know, sort of pre-industrial society or whatever, yeah, people trade, you know, before you have money, literally you have a barter economy and people trade goods and that that happens on quite a local level and it's quite straightforward and it's quite sort of comprehensible. But arguably, I would say once you get to kind of, you know, 21st century capitalism or 20th century capitalism, the trades that are going on are so elaborate and mysterious and you know in half the time if you look at like say the banking sector it's trading things that don't really exist it's trading yeah. you know like you were saying with milo writing out a share you know it's it's, it's all about trade <laughs> it's, it's not about actual things it's not about kind of and even if it is about actual things it becomes almost meaningless i was just thought i'd, I'd just read to give people an idea about just about sort of the, the language of Catch-22 and also particularly in Milo, because I think this emphasises slightly what I was saying about how, not only how elaborate it is, but almost how it, it almost becomes so complicated that it ceases to sort of mean anything. So th- this is from a section towards the end of the book where Milo is disingenuously offering to hand over his business to Colonel Cathcart. And basically uh, he tells Colonel Cathcart everything he's going to need to understand to take over the business. So this is just almost at uh, random from this uh, chapter, he says. And don't forget the galvanised zinc in the warehouse at Flint. Four carloads of galvanised zinc from Flint must be flown to the smelters in Damascus by noon on the 18th. Terms FOB Calcutta 2%, 10 days EOM. One Messerschmitt full of hemp is due in Belgrade for a C-47 and a half full of those semi-pitted dates we stuck them with from Khartoum. Use the money from the Portuguese anchovies we're selling back to Lisbon to pay for the Egyptian cotton we've got coming back from Marat. I don't even know where that is. And to pick up as many oranges as you can in Spain. And it's like this whole chapter goes on basically <laughs> along these lines until Colonel Cathcart basically gives up and says, look, I can't possibly do this. No one can do this but you, Milo. You're the only man who understands uh, this kind of level of commerce just because he's got so many trades going to different places and so many things. And, and, and you know, he ends up, for example, he, he over buys cotton and and realises it's worthless. And then he has to work out what to do with it and I don't know. I just, chocolate I feel like the novel, cotton. exactly. He starts serving <laughs> chocolate covered cotton in the mess and trying to convince people that it's uh, <laughs> cotton candy when actually it's literally cotton. But it, I, I don't know. I can't help feeling that it sort of satirizes more than just the kind of war profiteering that it's, there's something about kind of modern capitalism there that is kind of. Just overly complicated and sort of absurd, and that I don't know that maybe you get a sort of element of that with Nog, and obviously the Starfleet characters don't. Of course, they don't understand it. They they live in a post scarcity economy. They're not used to trading for things. We we see very basic trades with other cultures occasionally, but they're not used to this kind of elaborate notion of commerce somehow.
2: About that, at, at least at a higher level, because in order to deal with other cultures that have money, there must be some way in which. The Federation is converting whatever energy surplus into something they can trade for, say, latinum so that, you know, the crew members on DS9 have latinum or something like that. But they're not used to, at their own level, dealing with that. But there must be something like that going on at a big, level. is it that level.
0: complicated? Because what I'm yeah. – yeah, I know what you mean. I, I'm just saying like when we see it, it's usually like, okay, we'll give you <laughs> – it all seems very straightforward, doesn't it? It's like, we'll give you these – whatever they are something reclamation something you, you know some tech device basically and in exchange we'll get this quantity of dilithium or this quantity of you know some yeah. it's like one thing for one thing it's it's always very straightforward and it doesn't seem that complicated whereas in the real world you know if you look at i mean you know we're going through all this at the moment with brexit and everything the kind of enormous complexity of all these kind of trading arrangements and you know yeah. tariffs and and you, you know and the extent to which Historically, here in Britain, we've had all these kind of agreements about, you you know, when you, you know, let your land lie and don't grow anything on it, and all these kind. Do you you know what I mean? The the kind of just elaborate nature of. Real-world uh, economics, you, you know, even over things like that that are basically goods. Let alone when you're talking about shares and kind of these sort of imaginary instruments and things like that. I don't know. It, it's sort of um, to me, I suppose, it's the kind of fine line from the absurdity of of the details to the kind of absurdity of the the ungraspable, almost impossible system that the system that is so elaborate that really no one can comprehend it, uh, even Milo or Nog. You know, that there's something that that ultimately can't be grasped somehow.
2: Yeah, I I mean, although, you know, in in seeing what Milo's doing in Catch-22, especially when he talks about, you know, buying something for a higher price than he sells it, it it literally makes no sense. But what Nog's doing, I think, like, when you watch the episode, it makes a certain amount of sense. Like, this person wants this, so I'm going to trade that, and this person wants this. Yeah, I think it becomes a little elaborate, but it's not something that it's impossible to understand. Like, you know, in our, not impossible, but like in our own world, there are things that People are, you know, buying and selling and and trading that don't really exist. Like futures, like you're mm. speculating on the future price of something. Like what mm. is that, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, or some of these like really complex financial instruments or bundling mortgages or stuff like that That's that, you know, we've created these things where people can have some benefit, but a lot of times people don't understand what it is, which can get you in a lot of trouble, right? Mm. But yeah, I, I can... I can see how what Nog's doing could get a little complicated, but those are, I think, real physical things that he's trading. So it makes, it's easier for me to grasp,
0: I guess. There's that great episode right at the beginning of DS9 in, uh, and again, it's the b-plot i think in the episode progress where jake and nog it's where they set up the no Jay consortium oh yeah <laughs> uh, which again it's sort of weirdly reminiscent of milo minderbinder has his m&m enterprises right. stamped on like all his planes but he has his own fleet of planes you know aside from right. you know the and he's
2: replacing medical supplies and saying like m&m enterprises needed this you know exactly
0: yes the parachute silk has been used yeah for, you, you know for because <laughs> he needed a supply of silk for something so no one has any parachutes anymore but um it 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 reminded me, though, in that episode of they do all these trades for all these things. they got their self-sealing stem bolts and their, you know, whatever it is. And then they end up buying land. uh, And Jake is like, oh, this is great. You know, land is, (laughs) you know, he sort of knows his history. (laughs) Like land is worth something. I mean, even in the world of Star Trek, land is worth something because, you know, you have people who need a planet to live on or they need somewhere to live. But Nog is just like, what's land? You know, that's just earth. That's, that's, that's worthless, basically. What are we supposed to do with land? That's not a commodity that he understands. Uh, presumably, right. Ferenganar doesn't have a, you know, population problem or anything. Uh, and, and land is not at a premium, but I don't know. I just thought that, that again, it's kind of interesting that idea of to us, that seems so basic that land is valuable in a sense. But to Nog, it was just like, yeah, well, what do I want with that? You know, that's, that's worthless. Although in the end, of course, in that story, it turns out the land happens to be, in the way of some proposed development or whatever, and they can almost name their price to to sell it onto the government. So there's that kind of, yeah. you, you know, weirdly, they do end up making a, a big profit out of it in the end, despite that.
2: There, there was actually one thing I wanted to to, to mention if we we're talking about Treachery Faith in the Great River and in the cards. So in the cards is interesting because basically the Jake and Nog story is really the A-plot and what's going on with, you know, Cisco and the Kai and the and uh, I think Wyun's there is kind of the B plot, which is really unusual. So it's clear the focus is on this thing that they're do that in the end raises everybody's spirits. Mm. Whereas in treachery faith in the great river, it became really clear, you know, rewatching it. The, the part with nog in the trades is actually a. it's not only the B plot, but it's a fairly small part of the episode. It may only be like a third of the episode. The other two thirds has to do with, with Odo, you know, meeting up with, Wayne Six that's trying to defect and all of this stuff that's going on. I've heard some people say, like it's that's a really weird episode because there's this really serious important stuff and you find out that the the founders uh, have this disease for the first time. There's like consequential stuff that's going on in that part of the episode, and then there's you know Nog doing these trades to get the gravity generator and all that. Maybe it feels like it's a little bit tossed off, but I actually really like that it's a part of that episode because. I mean, the the two plots don't really intersect, but I think there is something about what's going on with the trades that Nog has and and the comic relief that's provided that's actually a nice kind of counterpoint to the really serious stuff where literally mm. someone's life is at stake and there's, you know, important things that are happening in, in, in the plot. But I, I wondered how well it works for you because it is something that's a very different structure than in the cards, which we've talked about.
0: And I would say... I mean, I think one of the criticisms that people sometimes make of DS9 is that the A plots and the B plots are often totally unrelated. Whereas in mm-hmm. some ways in Next Gen, there might be uh, often, if you think of like a kind of, especially a sort of typical Michael Pillar story, somehow there would be a, a, a symmetry between like the seemingly inconsequential stuff. You know, often say he would write yeah. these uh, episodes where there's like a scene on the holodeck or something at the beginning that somehow relates to the theme of the show or something like There's a kind of, uh, there's a, a structural tidiness somehow. Whereas in, in the case of Deep Space Nine, partly because they were moving maybe towards more serialization, towards a more al- almost what you get with soap operas where you get kind of different strands being picked up here and there. And they're not necessarily going anywhere within an, a, a given episode. They're kind of, um, just, you, you know, a step on the way within a certain story. And I, I do see what you mean that in, in the case of Treachery, Faith and the Great River, they don't really have that much to do with each other. I mean, in the cards, I'd say it it, it is an interesting story because it is almost a story where the A and the B plot have been flipped because there is Mm -hmm. this kind of serious story going on with the Kai meeting with the Dominion and this kind of whole thing about the non-aggression pact and all that sort of thing. And the Dominion kind of gearing up for you know, sort of political machinations and so on. And one of the things that I think works quite well about that episode is that it does all tie together because, you know, Jake and Nog sort of wander from... I mean, if it were the other way around, it would be that they'd wandered into the A-plot from their B-plot. But in fact, they're wandering from their A-plot into the (laughs) B-plot. The the two end up together and they end up, you know, in the hands of Wayoon and having to explain themselves to him. And I think that's quite unexpected in a way because suddenly they find that there are stakes by that point you know he might kill them or who knows what might happen do you know what i mean the d- d- no. drama does kind of ramp up a little bit if in a slightly mad way i i can see the criticism with treachery faith and the great river that the two are are very separate on the other hand i read um something someone was arguing that the title of that episode uh they felt was deliberately ambiguous because the three elements treachery faith and the great river they saw as potentially applying equally to both stories and the reason they said that was you you know that obviously there's treachery on nog's part insofar as he basically betrays o'brien's trust by taking this authorization code and doing all these awful things with it and then seemingly disappearing on a runabout and everyone's like is he coming back or is he doing (laughs) you know like in catch 22 i mean spoilers sorry for the end of catch 22 (laughs) the main character yossarian basically uh goes awol and, and makes a run for it and and actually one of the moments that is very effective in the film is uh the last shot of the film is you see him getting into a little inflatable dinghy and again sort of absurdly trying to row his way (laughs) (laughs) sort of out of harm's (laughs) way basically trying to row himself to neutral territory so he can he can kind of quit the quit the forces but you know so there's treachery there there's faith obviously in both storylines and i'd say that is the kind of unifying thing is that for odo and wayun there's this discussion about Odo being a god and Wayun's religious belief, and so on, mm-hmm. and for Nog, there's this kind of religious belief in the Great River, and so on. And then there's the Great River itself, which it hadn't occurred to me, but the Odo and Wayun story takes place on the Rio Grande runabout, mm. and the Rio Grande means Great River.
2: Yeah, so there is literally, huh. you know,
0: which which maybe just seem like too much of a coincidence to have not been put in there as a little, yeah, you, you know, motif or something. So, so anyway, so that was one theory that I read that basically the two stories, they might seem like they have nothing in common, but somehow the title sort of ties them together, as well as this idea of faith, of course. I I think even
2: so, for, for me, even if something is unrelated as long as Mm -hmm. the A and the B plot are both done well and I enjoy watching it and, you know, provide something good for the characters or moves them forward, I actually don't care if it's not Mm. related because life is like that, right? There are different things that are going on for different people that know each other and they don't necessarily connect up right away or all the time. There are just these separate bits that are happening. And I'm actually glad that it kind of worked out the way it does. Although I, I do wish a little bit that there was more of, like, the the Nog story because it's very entertaining. But it is, yeah. I actually don't mind when it doesn't connect up, but if it connects up in the title and the theme, all the better.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's an interesting point. I, no, I mean, I agree with you, and I think, assuming that you're watching this show from week to week or whatever, it doesn't really matter so much. I mean, the, when it's a shame, I think, is what does happen sometimes in Star Trek, where you get an episode with a really weak A plot and a really strong B plot, mm-hmm. and as a result... People don't go back to those episodes. I'm thinking, for example, the episode Meridian, is it where Dax has that romance oh, with the Vikings? Which is awful A yeah. plot, like really unappealing episode to go back to. The B plot is Jeffrey Combs' first Star Trek episode. Yeah, that's what makes it, that, it worth it. That great story where I mean, really seedy, nasty story, but you know, he plays this really fantastic guest character sort of villain. And this is the one where he's trying to get Major Kira's likeness to right. use in his kind of hollow porn program, basically. <laughs> uh, and ends up with that hilarious shot where she, where it's Quark's head instead has been superimposed. I mean, as a, just as a story, that B-plot is great, but it's unfortunately saddled to a really awful A-plot, yeah. and therefore in an episode that no one is going to remember fondly. So at least in this case, I think both the A-plot and the B-plot work very well, and people generally like both sides of the episode. So... Mm-hmm. In a way, it doesn't really bother me either that they don't necessarily tie up all that much.
2: But that's true. Yeah, if 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 you have the A plot and you're not into it or it doesn't work, and then the B plot is something you want to see more of, that's, that's really a shame. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. Meridian is probably one of the weaker <laughs> DS9 episodes overall for that.
0: But maybe finally, we could just sort of, before we wrap up, ju- I'm just thinking about sort of nog in general and these episodes i mean i think particularly i saw aaron eisenberg was was saying he he particularly appreciated treachery faith and the great river because it kind of put nog in a more i guess it puts him in the driving seat in a way it's sort of you know he's the the kind he's of, very
2: confident throughout the
0: episode he's right? very confident he's very confident and competent as well i mean he really you know he he pulls it off just sort of against <laughs> the odds and i'm kind of thinking it's interesting that with with nog you know you've got the ferengi uh, he starts off as the kind of this kind of typical Ferengi kid, you know. He's always in trouble. He, he's the bad influence that Cisco wants to keep Jake away from. Then he becomes, you know, the Starfleet cadet. He's very kind of patriotic. He's very kind of earnest, sort of ideal Starfleet material in a way. But it's quite nice the way they managed to bring back this sort of uh, wheeler-dealer, sort of roguish side. And, and it made me sort of think about these these wheeler-dealer characters, these kind of characters who. And I don't think this is the case with Nog. I mean, I think Nog is a very likeable, a very sort of lovable character anyway. But, you know, the fact that a lot of these other characters that we were looking at, whether it's Hawkeye, whether it's Milo Minderbinder, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's Del Boy Only Fools and Horses, whether these kind of characters who are kind of working the system, working the people, kind of always up to something or other, that actually there's something quite appealing about them. And I think that's true. Weirdly you know even Milo in uh, Catch 22 I mean Milo is true like on paper, a truly awful person. He's a war profiteer. People get killed because of the decisions he made. You know, we talked about he, he removes the parachutes from the plane so people don't have parachutes. He's running ads on Lord Haw uh, radio show. So, <laughs> you know, basically aligning himself with absolute treachery, uh, you know, in, and in the Second World War. And he even is, in, like,
2: know, enlists, like, like Nazi fighter planes, right?
0: Yeah, he does. He's enlisting <laughs> German planes. I mean, you know, he's bombing his own people. He's absolutely shameless profiteer. On the other hand, there is this sort of sense that he is – sort of a genius and i suppose in terms of the novel because in the novel you have this mad situation and different characters are trying to escape the war one way or another so you know maybe they're trying to pretend that they've gone mad they're trying to fake i mean the whole idea of catch-22 is that the i mean it comes up in various forms but the the most kind of straightforward one i suppose is this idea that you know you can be sent home from the war on grounds of insanity but anyone who says they want to be sent home from the war couldn't possibly be insane because the only insane thing is to want to stay in the war and that's the that's the kind of (laughs) catch 22 of the title so there's that kind of idea that everyone is sort of trying to escape one way or another so whether it's your kind of you know literally kind of going awol at the end or you know the, the other character or who's kind of successfully done that or other characters who are finding ways to sort of escape from the 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 mad strictures of the situation they've been put in in some ways milo is quite an impressive character you know because he is absolutely uh he's made it work for him do you know what i mean he's like he's he's not he's not just going along with it he's not certainly not following orders you know he's kind of he's worked the system to this kind of ridiculous extent and as much as we can see him as a kind of villain and a profiteer and a, a really sort of nasty piece of work in a way and totally i suppose sort of totally it's not that he's evil he's just totally amoral he has no interest in in patriotism in the rights and wrongs of anything it's all about commerce it's all about money but at the same time i think he's quite an appealing character in a different sense because he's so (laughs) there's something quite refreshing about it it's also it's it's so extreme and it's so kind of he has a lot of agency he has a lot of and and a lot of ingenuity and all these kind of qualities that you know we do appreciate in someone like nog we like the fact that he's running rings around o'brien and you you know uh as, as mad as all this seems and as much chaos as it seems to be causing you know, we sort of appreciate those qualities and I'm, I'm just curious. I think, I think there is something that we, we do love about those slightly roguish characters and it makes him more interesting than say, you know, a kind of straight down the line character. It makes him more interesting than like a Wesley Crusher or someone like that who, you know, is, is very earnest and nice and decent, but kind of just plays by the rules. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. It's an interesting point. Actually, I want to go back a little bit to, to what you said, because um, in, for one of a boot, the mesh episode, Hawkeye is kind of doing these trades, but In the course of the show, he's not usually the one doing that. Usually it's radar. You saw Mm -hmm. the the season four episode, which is. I think he does a better job of it. So he's actually more of kind of the Wheeler dealer, but uh, right. Hawkeye is definitely like a rogue, definitely rebellious. There's different episodes where he's definitely going against orders or trying to do things in the service of saving someone's life that maybe he's not supposed to. But like in in the case of, of Milo, like I think one of the things that really stands out is maybe with one exception where he buys the entire Egyptian cotton market and doesn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he is completely in his element and knows what to do, knows how to get out of the worst situations. Because like after he bombs his own outfit, like there's this whole investigation, but somehow he turns it around so that people see him as doing like the patriotic work of the country. Like in a way, like he's the villain, but he's also like a heroic figure in, in the novel because when everyone else, just about everyone else has their doubts, is insecure, paranoid, or whatever. He is the most confident in that whole mm-hmm. novel. And Nog does have a ton of confidence in treachery faith in the great river. It's like, don't worry, chief, I've got this. It's only a rumor, but it's from a reliable source. No worries. And like, and, and uh, you know, Cisco calls O'Brien to his office toward the end. and O'Brien's like, oh, I'm going to get it now. And like, Nog's just there polishing the desk, like everything's cool. I've dealt with <laughs> it. And and like, doesn't this desk look great? You know, like there, there's something about his confidence in that. But it actually contrasts a little bit with in the cards where where Nog is really uncertain about spending the money to buy this card, really uncertain about this trade or how crazy this this guy is. And they and Jake and Nog kind of stumble around a little bit and happen to get lucky in it and it works out. But, you know, the later episode in Treachery Faith in the Great River, he, it's like, his ultimate moment to show that he has supreme confidence in this area (laughs) of trading. And there is something that that you love about that. Whereas in the cards, there's something you love about them kind of stumbling around and still working it out.
0: I think partly in the cards, they sort of, they still feel a little bit like kids. And, you know, obviously, we've grown up with these characters to some extent. I mean, they've they've grown up in front of us, obviously, for some of us literally growing up, you know, with them at the same time. And in the card sort of feels like, I guess because Jake says all this stuff about this is, you know, I want to pay my dad back for everything he's done for me. And obviously we know that he's he's done something big for Nog. You know, he's enabled him to enter Starfleet. There's this kind of idea that it's almost a sort of coming of age story, I think, for them to kind of give something back. Um, and they are still kind of bumbling through it a bit. And they are still a bit kind of, it's sort of an adventure. It has that feel of like, you know, kids going on an adult adventure to the extent that when they do wander into Wayun. Or, you know, where you kidnaps them at the end, it's very much like, oh, we're suddenly, like I said, you you know, not so much we're in the A plot, but we're like in the adult story. We're in like the real, the real DS9 story as opposed to the kind of lower deck story in a way. Whereas I guess in Treachery, Faith, and the Great River, you know, Nog is absolutely, I think he's an ensign by this point. But so he, so he feels by this point, I can't remember where this falls in terms of like, you know, the whole storyline with him losing his leg and, and it's only a paper moon and all, and all of that, which obviously is also in the seventh season. Yeah, I think it's before that. Right. Okay. Fine. But even so, he, he seems quite confident. He seems like, you know, he's, he's, yeah, he's a junior officer, but he is very much, you know, he, he's there as an adult. He's there. You know, if we hadn't known Nog as a kid, if you know what I mean, we would accept him as this new mm-hmm. young guy, you know, in the same way as we're accepting Esri Dax as this new young counselor or whatever, you know, he, he feels more in his element, I suppose. And I think, and that's, you know, one of the things that's nice about that episode and about that storyline is it does really, In some ways, you know, his his characterization in that story harkens back all the way to the first season, as I say, and, you know, the No-J Consortium and all this kind of uh, wheeler-dealer stuff that he was doing even then. But at the same time, he feels like he's doing it very much as a Starfleet officer. And yes, he's going to bend the rules and he's going to do things that no one else would consider doing. But at the same time, you know, it it is all for the right reasons. It is all, you, you know, in a way, he is doing his job and he's going above and beyond what's expected of him. And he's going to really produce the goods by the end of it. And, you know, he probably will get promoted for that kind of behavior in a way, because he's, he's made himself a sort of invaluable member of the crew. Yeah,
2: definitely. Definitely.
0: Well, it's been fun uh, talking about nog and mash and Catch Twenty Two, and particularly fun for me going to uh, you know start on this journey of experiencing mash, which I'd never seen before. So, thank you, Justin. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, but also thank you for for kicking that off. And I'm kind of aware, just from the response when I, I put a tweet out, you know, saying that we were going to be talking about this, uh, the number of people who wanted to hear, you know, a primitive culture episode all about mash and the whole of mash and all 11 seasons and so on you know maybe <laughs> at some point further down the line we'll have to have you back on but that will that <laughs> might be a you know a year or two okay. for me to get through <laughs> that that kind of uh, 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 a a viewing especially since of i don't think yeah maybe if they put them on netflix that might help because i've got that on my ipad i can kind of blitz through those but you know but we'll see so maybe sometime in the future but in the meantime it's been um it's been great fun talking about these this you know sort of smaller focus and uh and looking at these ds9 episodes as well but before we go, why don't you um, give our listeners uh, an idea of where they can find you on social media and if they want to get in touch with you and hear more of your thoughts on DS9 or even on the next generation, which I guess is kind of your patch as far as Trek FM is concerned.
2: Yeah. So you can find me elsewhere on Trek FM, uh, co-hosting Earl Grey. That's with Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez. We have a great time talking about The Next Generation every week. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So whether it has to do with Star Trek, any iteration, any movie, or whether it has to do with MASH, you can feel free to contact me. I'd be happy to talk about it.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us. It's been great to have you thank you it's been wonderful to be here well it's been fun uh talking to justin about mash and star trek and uh trading our thoughts back and forth on those various subjects but that's not all we've been doing on trek fm this week so here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network
2: previously on trek.fm primitive culture a look at history and culture through star trek
0: you know, I remember the freedom of having my own car. And believe it or not, I actually had a Plymouth Fury. It wasn't a 58, right? No it way. Was just, it was a 73. <laughs> but yeah, my first car was a Plymouth Fury. And there was, this is, the movie was part of the reason why. When I saw that for sale, it was a cheap car. I paid like 500, 300 bucks, something like that for it. It was in really- Brandon, shape. you really, you really didn't take the message of this movie. <laughs> you went out and bought one of those cars. <laughs> it was yellow. It wasn't red, you know, so. Who knows? Someone might have sprayed it. Standard Orbit. <laughs>
2: We recorded most of the Shatner episodes. Every now and then we missed. Like, okay, we'll get it next round with Nimoy. We kind of thought it'd be the same thing. It's like, oh, there's going to be no difference. It's just Spock reading it instead of Kirk. No, completely different, right? So it's like, oh, crap. We should have bought 160 tapes instead of 80 for this. Literary Treks. I did like the scenes with his family and Riker, you know, spending the night at the home, getting up in the morning, having breakfast with the family. Oh, look, they made him coffee. There There was just something really nice and settling about Riker just being in that situation and being treated with such respect and with arms around him, you know, just welcoming him and making him feel at home. And I guess you don't really feel that all that often in many Star Trek stories when you beam down to a planet and you're just welcomed into somebody's home and you're just seeing what a normal, happy family is like. Warp (laughs) 5. That's kind of
0: how Tripp acted, though, right? He, he needed to see this. He needed to actually step in uh, to the situation. And, and I appreciate that. You know, like, a lot of people give him some flack for being kind of pig-headed, or I think they even almost assume that he has a problem with the three genders. And he's like, no, I don't have a problem with the three genders. I have a problem that this third sex, I, I guess, they get it wrong. The Enterprise, the writers should have said sex the entire time they should have said sex. But I'm guessing, you
2: know, they're on TV. And if they say sex a whole bunch, they might get uh, the wrong the wrong idea and that's what else is happening on trek.fm
1: check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in apple podcasts on iphone ipad or apple tv or the desktop itunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published
0: and please leave us a star rating and a written review if you're not an apple user we've got you covered as well You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link.
1: We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm
0: contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com
1: trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC.
0: If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details.
1: Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
0: We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from The X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson.
1: You're blended all right.